0: You'll remember that I finished my last lecture by telling you what I thought I'd established uh, to date. Uh, Viz. that the claim that there is a God, the central claim of the religions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam, this central claim makes sense. It says something that could be true, the truth of which is logically possible. It even, I suggested, although this is uh, more controversial, said something which was in itself relatively simple uh, as a metaphysical hypothesis. But if the first part of the claim is right, that it uh, says something logically possible, the claim that there's a God could be true. It could be true, but then all sorts of things could be true. Is it actually true? And so that's the question I'm going to be going on to address now with the rest of the lectures. In the rest of the lectures I'm going to be looking at arguments for the existence of God and then arguments against the existence of God. But before I get into that, I want to first address uh, the view that we don't need any arguments for belief in God to be entirely rational and proper. And this might strike some of you as a surprising view, but it's actually a relatively mainstream view uh, within philosophy of religion, particularly in the USA. So let me um, step back a little bit and give, give the view. Some, philosophies, uh, some philosophers, uh, notably Alvin Plantinga, have certainly maintained that it could well be and I quote, entirely right, rational, reasonable, and proper to believe in God without any evidence or argument at all. And whilst I actually incline to agree with them in principle, I don't think that anyone in this lecture theatre will be a person whom belief in God can be in this way uh, properly basic, as the technical terminology has it. So I think that we'll all need arguments, and hence we'll have an uh, intellectual interest in the rest of the subject matter of the lecture series. Uh, But let me step back a little bit further and and sketch this alternative view which goes by the name of reformed epistemology. Now, some of our beliefs are based on other beliefs by arguments. These other beliefs stating the evidence which constitute what we take to be our reasons for the beliefs that are so based upon them, naturally enough. However, given that none of us, except God, if he exists, can have an infinite number of beliefs, uh, which is what per impossibile would be necessary were each of our beliefs to be based on others by argument, So we must ground some of our beliefs in some beliefs which themselves are ungrounded. They're basic. Um, Okay. We must then have some beliefs without basing them on other beliefs, which we have about there being evidence for them. And it's natural for us to ask which belief or beliefs is it acceptable to have as basic. In other words, which is or could be properly basic. In the context of our concerns in this lecture series, it's natural to ask whether belief that there's a God could be properly basic. And that's the question which I'm addressing briefly now. So for some people, in some times, some cultures, belief that there's a God has, I think, been basic. So uh, we may imagine an orphan brought up in a secluded monastery in the Middle Ages. He never hears of atheism or agnosticism as possibilities. He never has any argument for or against the existence of God put to him for his consideration. And although he's ceaselessly told about God by his fellow monks, he doesn't take their testimony as evidence uh, that what they're saying is true. He never uses the fact they're saying it as a premise in an argument for the truth of what it is they're saying. He just simply and uncritically believes the content of what they're saying and his belief that there is a God is thus a belief which has never occurred to him. might be grounded on other beliefs, might be questioned by the beliefs he has. For him, it's entirely basic, always. Okay, I think that's possible. But let's observe an important fact about ourselves, which we'll probably already have spotted. We're not at all like that orphan. Whether belief that there's a God could be properly basic for someone depends obviously on whether or not it could be basic for them. And belief that there's a God could not, I suggest, be basic for any of us here today. Anyone here will not be in a position analogous to this orphan brought up in this secluded monastery. We will have met theists, will have met atheists, will have met agnostics, will have heard of various arguments for and against the existence of God and will have thought about them we we'll have started to place our belief in the existence of God, our belief in his non-existence, or our belief that we should suspend judgment, whatever our belief is. We'll have started to place our belief, if it is the belief in God, we'll have started to place it in context in relation to these other beliefs that we have about these issues, beliefs which we'll regard as more basic than it. Of course, we might, might one day be in receipt of an overwhelming religious experience which immediately, basically, caused a belief state that there is a God to form in us. But in a moment, that experience will have passed and we'll be relocating our continuing belief that there is a God within the context of these other beliefs once more. So even if belief in God could be momentarily basic uh, for any of us, I don't think it can be basic for any of us over any elongated period, any period in which we reflect on the belief that we have that there is a God, if it is a belief that we have. So if we have the belief that there is a God, we're told that this belief might be properly basic, i.e. we're told that in fact we don't need any arguments for it at all, we needn't be anxious about the dearth of good arguments because that belief you have that there's a God you can take it as properly basic. If we're told that, well we'll then ask for arguments to suppose that it is properly basic. Arguments and appreciation and understanding of which will reveal that for us the belief that there was a God was not actually basic in the first place and so not properly basic. So that's my claim. We're all people, I mean it's an empirical claim, you might say well look I'm not My psychology isn't as you've just described, so in fact this is false of me, but I think I'm hazarding that we're all people for whom the belief in God can't be basic, and hence can't be properly so, even if it could be for some other people. So for better or worse, we need arguments if we're to proceed. So I turn to this question. Can we have any reasons for believing that it's true that there's a God? Arguments are what purport to give us reasons, and good arguments I define as arguments the premises of which make the conclusion more probable than not, and the premises and reasoning of which are more obviously correct than is the truth of the claim uh, that constitutes the conclusion. Uh, This is in itself pretty uncontroversial, it's a little bit of a mouthful, all of what I'm about to say is down on the uh, handout in front of you, Uh, but I don't think um, it would be disputed by anyone in uh, mainstream philosophy. So this then is a definition of good arguments that includes all deductively sound arguments for the existence of God that can be recognised as such without needing to arm the assumption that there's a God, if there are any such arguments, and it also includes what we might call inductively sound arguments for the existence of God, that is to say arguments where the true premises make the conclusion there's a God more probable than not, and which can be recognised as doing so without needing to rely on the assumption that there's a God, if there are any such arguments. And a number of arguments which on their own merely inductively supported a particular conclusion, none of which were raising that conclusion's probability beyond 50%, and which did not on their own constitute a good argument, might, when taken together, raise the probability of the conclusion beyond 50%, and thus, when taken together, produce what we might call a good cumulative case argument, one that was itself collectively, sort of, if you like, inductively sound. Alright, so that's what I'm going to be looking for, good arguments for the existence of God, who I've described in the first three lectures, and then, after I've looked at those, good arguments against the existence of God, that I've described in the first three lectures. And that's what I mean by good arguments, and as I say, that is relatively controversial. Uh, sorry, uncontroversial, even though I've gone through it rather briefly, and it is in the handout, the first main section of the handout has it down if you missed a few details. So in the history of thought, there have been a very great number of arguments for the existence of God that have been purported to be good. Kant helpfully divided these arguments into three classes, and I'm going to follow his uh, division. It's just a taxonomic preference, really, if you don't like it, um, there's good reasons perhaps to prefer others. It's my uh, preferred uh, way of chopping it up, uh, and it was Kant's. Firstly, according to Kant, there are those arguments that begin, as he would put it, from pure categories a priori, arguments which start simply from the concept of God and seek to derive his actual existence, the sort of arguments you could come up with entirely in your armchair and with your eyes closed. Secondly, there are those that begin from indeterminate experience, from the mere fact that there is a universe. Um, And thirdly, there are those that begin from determinate experience, that is, from some particular feature of the universe that we've discovered. You've had to have got out of your armchair... Uh, opened your eyes and had a look at something for one of those. So, into the first class, we put the ontological argument, beginning as it does, simply from the reflection on the concept of God. If you don't know what the ontological argument is, don't worry, we'll come to it in a minute. Into the second class, we put the cosmological argument, beginning as it does from the mere fact that there is a universe. And into the third class, we put those arguments for the existence of God, which start from some feature of the universe. For example, the feature that it is ordered, that it had a beginning, that it contains conscious beings, that it contains moral truths, that it contains the particular moral truths that it does, that it contains miracles or reports of miracles anyway, that people have religious experience and so on. So there's a lot in the third class. With the exception of the ontological argument, all these arguments for the existence of God can be presented as good in in virtue of having true premises and being deductively valid in ways more obvious Than is the truth of the existence of God, or as good in virtue of having true premises and being inductively valid, as I've called it, in ways more obvious than is the truth of the existence of God, or as, whilst not in isolation, good having true premises and inductively supporting the truth of theism in a way that is more obvious than is the truth of the existence of God, i.e. as potentially contributing to a good cumulative case argument for God's existence. The ontological argument can only be presented as purporting to be a deductively sound argument, which can be recognised as such without needing to rely on the assumption there's a God. Okay. So there's um, some terminology about good arguments, bad arguments, deductive soundness, inductive soundness, inductive support, cumulative case. There's a little way of dividing up the arguments and how, if you take the taxonomy uh, and the terminology together, you'll, you'll group them. Now, I've only got a finite uh, number of lectures left. You may be pleased to learn. So I've had to narrow my focus down to a manageable uh, number of these arguments, and I've selected the arguments I'm going to look at on the basis of how prima facie plausible they seem to me, and on the basis of how often they come up as subjects of questions in finals. Now, as the first of these considerations is the only one that's really philosophically defensible by being intellectually inescapable, so I should offer you my apologies if my bearing in mind the second consideration is going to deprive you of a consideration of one of your Favourite arguments and uh, you could always pick that up in questions or in uh, discussion later but this week for good or ill I'm going to look at the ontological argument and the cosmological argument, those were two for this week <coughs> Excuse me. so the ontological argument first the ontological argument was first thought of by St Anselm almost a thousand years ago just after breakfast he tells us he had this idea if you want to read his version, it's in his book, uh, Poslogium, chapter 2 and following. And the essence of the argument can be stated uh, very briefly. It's on the handout. 1. God, by definition, is a perfect being. 2. It's better to exist than not to exist. Therefore, 3. God exists. In an argument, one can define terms however one wishes. Premise 1 just reports the core aspect of the theistic definition of God. So if anything goes wrong with the argument, it must be premise 2. But prayers, two looks pretty obviously right as well. Consider the following question. Which of these two options would be better for you? That you be vaporised right now with a ray gun that I happen to have on my person, and thus that you cease to exist? Or that you continue to exist, listening to the lecture and so on? Okay? Well, however small an amount of benefit you're gaining from the lecture, I doubt if you really think you'd be better off if you didn't exist course we can all imagine a situation where someone's life was so bad that it would be better for them if they ceased to exist. However, if the person in question is in all other ways well off, well it's certainly better for him or her if he continues to exist. And God is obviously going to be maximally well off in all other respects, so it's obviously going to be better for him, and indeed us, if he exists. So the claim that it's better to exist than not to exist, the uh, second premise, seems minor and irrelevant quibbling aside, obviously right too. So, both premises of the ontological argument are obviously true. Taken together, they lead in an obviously deductively valid way to the conclusion that God exists, which was something not so obviously true. So, we've got a deductively sound argument for the existence of God, the soundness of which is more obvious than is the existence of God. The ontological argument then satisfies our criteria for being a good argument, or or does it? Well, it's more easy to spot that something has gone wrong with the ontological argument than it is to describe exactly what it is that's gone wrong with it. Most people, when they hear the ontological argument, they're convinced there's some flaw in it um, from the start, and then they go looking to find the flaw, rather than they spot the flaw and then um, take it that way. One way of seeing that something must have gone wrong with the ontological argument is, I think, to consider that if it worked, one could generate parallel arguments ad infinitum which prove the existence of all sorts of necessary beings, any sort of entity one cared to mention. Allow me to introduce one such parallel argument. I hazard that you're all familiar with the uh, P.G. Woodhouse stories, Jeeves and Worcester, and Jeeves is the butler who's always on hand, as you'll recall, to get the bumbling Worcester and his chums out of the scrapes that they've got themselves into. Okay, so here's, here's the argument with that intro. One, Jeeves I define as the best possible butler. Two, given that it would be better if I had a better lecture to deliver on the ontological argument than this one, it would be better for Jeeves to be right now by my side handing me the notes for such a lecture so I could deliver it. Therefore, three, so Jeeves must right now be by my side handing me notes for the better lecture than the one I'm delivering. This argument seems as good as the ontological argument for the existence of God. The first premise simply reports my definition of Jeeves, one can define terms however one wishes, so there's nothing to be argued with there. The second premise reports the fact that it would be better if I was delivering a better lecture, which is true, and derives from it the fact that a better butler would be by my side right now with the notes for the better lecture to facilitate me delivering it, which seems to follow pretty obviously. Yet from these two premises it follows that Jeeves must right now be by my side with a better lecture. So where is he then? The objection that if the ontological argument worked, then my Jeeves argument uh, and similar sorts of arguments would also work is sometimes called the overload objection to the ontological argument. If the ontological argument worked, we could overload the universe with all sorts of entities like uh, Jeeves. One of uh, Anselm's contemporaries came up with this, um, and he had the example of the lost island, the best possible island, if you come across that in the literature, and a version of this. So something's gone wrong with the ontological argument. What exactly? Well, I suggest the following. Firstly, premise one is rather ambiguous. Have a look at it. Is this premise using the term God to pick something out and then attributing a property, albeit a central one to it, just as I might say of this pen here, that it is by definition something that occupies a fairly continuous section of space? Well, if so, we couldn't know that the term God has secured reference without already knowing the conclusion of the argument, viz that there is a God. So premise 1 would not be one that could be known to be true with more certainty than we knew the conclusion that there's a God, and that would be sufficient to undercut the claim of the ontological argument, that however deductively sound it was, that it was a good argument. However, if premise 1 is not using the term God to pick out something and then attribute a property to that thing, It must mean something like, if there's a God, then he is by definition perfect. But if that's what premise one really means, then although it could be known to be true without first needing to know there's a God, it cannot, of course, support the conclusion that God exists, but only the conclusion that if there's a God, then he exists, and that conclusion is a rather unexciting one. We all knew that anyway. So premise one, despite my initial enthusiasm for it, is in fact, I think, deeply uh, questionable. Despite this being a sufficient reason to reject the ontological argument, for the sake of completeness, if nothing else, we must look at the second premise. And the second premise is also the one on which most philosophical criticism has focused. The second premise is, it's better to exist than not to exist. So what can be said against that? (coughs) Excuse me. One can beat about the bush for quite a bit of time here but eventually one gets to the point that was first made by Kant existence is not a predicate. Let me explain what Kant meant by saying that existence is not a predicate. I talked in an earlier lecture about this pen and a couple of properties that it had. One of these was that it was being held by me and it's got that property again now, I'm holding it again. Kant's point would be that whilst it is indeed a genuine bona fide a property of the pen that it is being held by me is not a genuine bona fide property of the pen that it exists. And saying that existence isn't a predicate is a way of saying that existence isn't a property that objects have. So the following sentences are true. This pen is being held by me, and this pen is existing. But according to Kant, there's a crucial difference between those two sentences. The first really does predicate something of the pen. It picks out the pen and says of it that it has a property, the property of being held by me. The second sentence, despite its surface grammatical similarity with the first sentence, doesn't according to Kant do this. It does not pick out the pen and then assert of it that it has a property, is a property of existing. What does it do then? Well, answering that question is a bit more tricky, and to do so I have to augment what Kant said with something said by a later uh, philosopher, Gottlob Frege, and it's going to take me a moment or two to set out the ideas that we need if we're to understand what Frege said. Firstly, then, I want to introduce a distinction between what I'm going to call concrete objects and what I'm going to call abstract objects. Examples of concrete objects would be things like this pen, the chair you're currently sitting on, the lecture handout you have in front of you. Examples of abstract objects would be things like the nature of education, the number seven, classical theism as a philosophical theory, and so on. On what basis do we decide of things, whether they're concrete or whether they're abstract? Or indeed, do we decide on any basis at all? It may be the distinction between concrete and abstract is a brute one, incapable of explication in terms of anything more basic, and we just spot it by intuition. Well, this question is not an easy one to answer by any means, but fortunately for my present purposes, I don't really need to answer it, if I can assume, as I think it's safe to assume, that we all have a pretty good grasp on the distinction through the examples I've given, the distinction between concrete and abstract. Okay. Armed then with the distinction between concrete and abstract objects, let's go back to consider the concrete objects that are, let's say, the chairs in this room. It's natural for us to group the chairs in this room together in our minds for the purposes of discussion into one set. I've just done so and you didn't launch the set of chairs in this room. The set of chairs in this room is an abstract object, the members of which are concrete objects. The abstract object that is the set of chairs in this room has properties that its concrete members do not have. The abstract object, that is the set of chairs in this room, has this property, it has the property of having a quarter of the number of members as does the abstract object that is the set of chair legs in this room, given that every chair in this room has four legs. The individual concrete objects that are the chairs in this room could not be said to have a quarter of the number of members as does the set of chair legs in the room. That wouldn't make sense. The individual concrete objects that are the chairs in the room have properties that the abstract object, that is the set of chairs in this room, doesn't have. Each of the concrete objects that are the chairs in this room have for example a certain monetary value they could be bought and sold the abstract object that is the set of chairs in this room could not be said to have a monetary value, it couldn't be bought and sold now consider the following two sentences first sentence, the chairs in this room have a certain monetary value and secondly a sentence the chairs in this room are 100 in number. Let's suppose uh, that both of these sentences are true If one wasn't thinking too carefully, one might think that each of these sentences have the same subject, the chairs in this room. Chairs in this room have a certain monetary value, the chairs in this room are 100 in number, grammatically it looks that way. So each of these sentences has the same subject and predicates different things of that subject, having a certain monetary value and being 100 in number. But with Rager's help, we can now see that the real subject of these two sentences is actually different, despite their similar grammar. The first sentence takes the concrete objects that are the chairs in the room as its subject. The second sentence takes the abstract object, that is, the set of chairs in the room as its subject. The first is saying that the chairs in the room have a certain property, the property of having a certain monetary value. The second is saying that the set of chairs in the room has a certain property, the property of having a hundred members. And with this in hand, we now have the tools to understand Frege's interpretation of existence. Consider this sentence. The chairs in this room exist... What is the true subject of that sentence? Is it the concrete objects that are the chairs in the room? No. Is it the abstract object that is the set of chairs in this room? Yes. Saying that the chairs in this room exist is saying that the set of chairs in the room is not for the set with zero members. It's not the empty set. Saying x exists then is not actually saying anything about x. It's saying something about the abstract object that is the set of those things that was picked out by the concept of x and it's saying of it that it's not the set with zero members. Frege made this point in a a catchy way by saying that existence is nothing but denial of the number nought. Well, it's catchy for philosophers. So, according to Kant and Frege, existence is not a property of concrete objects. Existence isn't something that everything does, like breathing only quieter. Rather, when one says that X exists, one actually asserts something not about X, but about the set of Xs. And what one asserts is that the set of X's is not the empty set. The empty set being the set of zero members. If there's a God, then the set of gods is not the empty set. But the fact that the set of gods will not then be the empty set wouldn't be a fact about God. It wouldn't be a property of the concrete object that was God that the set of gods was not empty. It would be a property of the abstract object that was the set of gods, the property it had of not being identical to the empty set. So if God exists, it's not actually one of his properties that he exists. It's one of the properties of the abstract object, that is, the set of gods, but it's not identical with the empty set. So once we've shown, with Kant and Frege's help, that existence is not a property, we can go back to the argument, and we can see that premise two of the argument collapses. If existence isn't a property, it can't be a property that it's better to have than not to have, so it cannot be better to exist than not to exist. So, to sum up my conclusions with regard to the ontological argument, The first premise is true on both interpretations of it, if and only if theism is true. It's false on the interpretation of it that would be necessary for the argument to be a deductively valid one for theism if theism is false, and that's a sufficient reason for us to conclude the ontological argument is not a good argument for theism. The second premise is false if existence is not a predicate, which it isn't, so that too is a sufficient reason for us to conclude that the ontological argument is not a good argument for theism. So the ontological argument fails in two ways then, which I hope I've given you an indication of, two ways then as a deductive argument, and starting as it does from pure categories a priori, you remember the taxonomy, well, it can't be turned into an inductive argument, so I conclude the ontological argument doesn't provide us with any reasons at all for believing that it's true that there is a God. Have a look at the uh, second uh, bit of the cautionary note. there, the first bit was to do with reform epistemology and, and alternative viewpoints there, and um, as always, everything said from the front is, you know, more or less uh, contested by some philosopher somewhere in the world, and there are some defenders of the ontological argument. I'm not one of them. will give you a moment to read that, and then I'll go on. <coughs> okay, turning then to the cosmological argument, that's the second argument I'm going to talk about this week. I'm going to start by reading a presentation of the uh, cosmological argument given by Frederick Copleston in a radio debate with Bertrand Russell. Um, I put a reference on the handout. Uh, Here's the argument as Copleston puts it. First of all, I should say, we know that there are at least some beings in the world which do not contain in themselves the reason for their existence. For example, I depend on my parents and now on the air and on food and so forth. Now, secondly, the world is simply the real or imagined totality or aggregate of individual objects, none of which contain in themselves the reason for their existence. There isn't any world distinct from the objects which form it any more than the human race is something apart from its (coughs) members. Therefore, I should say, um, since objects and events exist and since no object of experience contains within itself the reason for its existence, the totality of objects must have a reason external to itself. That reason must be an existent being, Well, this is either in itself the reason for its own existence, or it is not. If it is, well and good. If it's not, then we must proceed further. But if we proceed to infinity in that sense, then there's no explanation of existence at all. So, I should say, in order to explain existence, we must come to a being which contains within itself the reason for its own existence, that is to say, which cannot not exist. Now, there is, I think it must be confessed, something prima facie plausible about this argument. It seems intuitively obvious that the universe is contingent. Not only might it not have been as it is, but it might not have existed at all. And when everyone comes across something that might not have been as it is or might not have been at all, it seems that we can sensibly ask why is it as it is or why is it at all? And that, and this is the principle of sufficient reason, we can expect reality to provide us with an answer, even if epistemically we can't discover it, in all cases. Sometimes the why is it as it is question can be answered by the sorts of investigations undertaken by natural scientists. However, scientific re- explanations rely on natural laws for which at the most fundamental level there can be no naturalistic explanation. So it seems as if there's something left over at the end of any non-theistic explanatory story, something that needs explanation, an explanation that it could only get from one's telling a different sort of explanatory story, a theistic one. All right. So what's to be said against this argument? first objection I want to consider to the cosmological argument is a version of the how-do-you-get-your-argument-to-stop-at-God objection. And this is a type of objection which is always instructive to consider raising against any argument uh, for the existence of God. And it will come up next week in discussion of the design argument, for example. It doesn't always uh, apply or apply obviously, but it's always instructive to consider raising it. The cosmological argument starts from the fact that the universe is contingent. Well, let's accept that uh, is a fact for the moment. We'll come back and think about it later. And then it argues from that fact, using the principle that wherever there's, there's contingency, there must be explanation. Let's accept that principle too. We'll come back uh, in a moment look at it. And thus the cosmological argument must end with something that's not contingent if it's ever going to stop, if it's not to proceed ad infinitum. This, the proponent of the argument says, is God. God, by contrast to the universe, is necessary. Okay, fair enough, one might think. Necessity, as discussed in a previous lecture, is one of God's essential properties, so it doesn't seem ad hoc to suggest it here. But we may ask of the theistic hypothesis whether or not the necessary being that is God necessarily created the universe. If he did, then as what a necessary being necessarily creates is as necessary as he is, So this universe would not, in fact, be necessary, contrary to the original premise of the argument. We didn't, in fact, detain ourselves with that thought, because the theistic account, preserving what I argued in an earlier lecture is another of God's essential properties, um, usually, Leibniz is the exception, but the theistic account, generally, uh, in virtue of preserving this property, uh, says of God that he only contingently chose to create this uh, universe thus the universe at the end of the theistic story is as contingent as it was at the beginning God might have chosen not to create this universe might have chosen to create another universe might have remained the sole existent thing and then there would have been nothing contingent there would have just been his necessary self Okay. well at this stage um, we can see that the traditional theistic story admits an element of contingency in God and at this stage we might object that the principle that led one from the contingent world to the necessary being that was God was the principle that contingency needed an explanation. We can't just get rid of that principle of shop says like we might dismiss a cab after it's taken us to our desired destination. How can it be adequate to stop with a being that itself contains contingency if you really believe in the principle of sufficient reason? Here, then, the proponent of the uh, argument must make another move, paralleling one which we'll see in due course he or she uh, needs to make when presenting the design argument. The proponent of the cosmological argument must draw a distinction between contingency in physical stuff, which needs explanation, and contingency in mental stuff, which does not. And by now we're recognisably on a path that leads outside the philosophy of religion and into the philosophy of mind, but it looks as if, doesn't it, that one would need to be at least somewhat favourably disposed towards substance dualism on independent grounds before one could meet the how-do-you-get-your-argument-to-stop-at-God objection to the cosmological argument. Well, I'll leave that for your consideration. Let's look at the premises more directly. cosmological argument rests on two premises, that the universe is contingent, that wherever there's contingency there must be an explanation. I'm going to look at these two premises in reversed order then. Firstly, the premise that contingency requires explanation, uh, the principle of sufficient reason. (coughs) One might deny the principle of sufficient reason in the form that is required for the argument to proceed. One can indeed sensibly ask the question, why there is a universe? but it doesn't follow from this fact that the question, it doesn't follow from the fact that we can sensibly ask the question, that it must have an answer. Perhaps there is no explanation of this admittedly contingent universe, someone might say. To think like this would be to reject the principle of sufficient reason, the principle that contingency, or at least contingency in physical stuff, needs an explanation. Okay. Well, maybe on the other hand, the principle that wherever there's contingency there's an explanation gains a lot of intuitive support from our everyday reasoning. After all, to look for explanations when something happens that needn't have happened is, one might suggest, the mark of a rational mind. If so, denying the principle of sufficient reason will not seem to you to be the way for the opponent of the argument to go. But then if there was something to which the principle of sufficient reason didn't apply, an issue on which the sort of induction from everyday affairs played as false, well suggesting that that thing is the universe rather than God's choice, or is at least no no more knowably less likely to be the universe than it is God's choice, doesn't seem to be uh, mad. Whilst we can ask why there's anything concrete at all, and there's and would be an answer to this question, perhaps there's really no reason to suppose there needs to be an answer. Something's got to be the ultimate brute fact. Perhaps this is it. Can we really have any less reason to suppose that this is it than that God's choice is it? Well, I'll leave those questions with you, but they certainly give one reason to doubt that premise. Let's look at the first premise, the universe is contingent. Okay, that each of you is here in this room today is a contingent fact. There's no necessity that anyone have come to my lecture today, something I'm very consciously aware of at about five minutes to ten when it looks as if nobody is going to come. Anyway, there's no necessity that even I have come. I could have been abducted on my way here by white slave traders confused white slave traders. It's contingent, then, that each and any one of us is here. So, via the principle of sufficient reason, we may sensibly ask why we are here. So let's suppose that I gave you five minutes, each of you asked of your neighbour for an explanation of his or her presence and that he or she gave it, and we collected them all together. What would your reaction be if, having heard all these different explanations of why each of us uh, was here, I then said, right, good. Well, that explains why each and every one of us, considered in isolation, is here today, But there's a further question that reason assures us must have an answer, and that I now want you to consider. And that's the question of why are all of us considered as a totality here today? Well, you'd surely think that this question was not one that reason assured us had an answer over and above the answer that had already been given, as to why each and every one of us considered in isolation was here today, quite the opposite. As long as the presence of each contingent member of the set of people in the room is explained, ipso facto, the whole set is explained. There's no fact left over, as it were, needing an explanation when each contingent member of the set of contingent things has received its full explanation. Now, armed with this result, let's accept for a moment the universe is indeed composed of various contingent things, as Copleston suggests. The universe is an aggregate of contingent beings. It would seem for my example, and Parche Copleston then, But it doesn't follow from this that there is a contingency with respect to the whole universe that needs explanation. If each contingent part of the universe were to be explained without reference to God, ipso facto, the contingent universe as a whole would be explained without need to refer to God. So the question is, can each contingent part of the universe be explained without reference to God? Some have thought so. Uh, What (laughs) might they say in support of it? Well... Some contingent parts of the universe certainly seem capable of more or less complete explanation without reference to God. We've just seen that your being here is a contingent fact and that it might be explained in terms of something other than God. You're wanting to hear this lecture, perhaps. You're wanting to hear this lecture is also a contingent fact, and as such, while the principle of sufficient reason is in need of an explanation. Although, not of course, if one's accepted that contingency in mental stuff doesn't need an explanation. But such a fact might receive an explanation as well. You're wanting to hear the lecture. Um, an explanation perhaps in terms of your intending to offer the philosophy of religion paper in schools. Of course that you intend to offer the philosophy of religion paper in schools is also a contingent fact, but it might be explained, might it not, perhaps in terms of your having a deep and abiding interest in matters of ultimate spiritual significance. Alternatively, in terms of your having heard the questions on this paper are the easiest to predict of all philosophy finals papers. Anyway, does the process of explaining one contingent thing in terms of another ever need to stop? Well, not on one view it doesn't, and that view is uh, determinism. On determinism, the state of the universe at a later time, everything true of the universe at that time, can be explained in terms of its state at an earlier time and the operations of the laws of nature on that earlier state. Thus, if determinism was true and the universe was of infinite age then every contingent thing that occurred, right down to the last detail, would have a sufficient explanation of its occurrence and the character of its details in terms of the preceding state of the universe and the laws of nature. Each member of the infinite set of contingent things that constitutes the universe would be explained in terms of another member of this set. If so facto, the whole contingent thing that is the universe would be explained without any reference to a necessary being God. Now, one's first reaction on hearing this might be to think that supposing that determinism was true and supposing that the universe is of infinite age would be supposing two things that scientists are pretty much unanimous in telling us are false. You'll probably have heard something of the Copenhagen interpretation of various quantum phenomena, and you'll certainly have heard of the Big Bang theory. So that is not the time to allow myself to go into these issues. But I don't really need to go into them, as even the determinist who believes that the universe is of infinite age can, it seems, sensibly ask, but why is there deterministic and infinitely old universe rather than an indeterministic universe or a temporally finite universe or no universe at all, and so on. So one can ask this question, and it seems to make sense. But perhaps it only seems to make sense because we're not in a position to to realise that the universe isn't contingent after all. It's necessary. One might then deny the first premise of the argument. One might say the universe is not in fact contingent after all. It's necessary. Or at least, and this would be sufficient to re- reject the cosmological argument, one might say that we can have no non-question-begging reason for thinking that the universe is not necessary. So let me look at this briefly. According to the theistic hypothesis, the contingent thing that is the universe gains its ultimate explanation from a necessary thing that is God. So to accept the cosmological argument as in any way supporting the theistic hypothesis, one must believe that God is more likely to be necessary than is the universe. Why think, then, that God would be more likely to have the property of necessity than the universe? In other words, why think that the so-called fact from which the cosmological argument starts, the universe is contingent, really is, or at least probably is, a fact? Well, unfortunately for the proponent of the cosmological argument, there is, I suggest, and this is a controversial uh, assumption you'll see from Hannah, there is, I suggest, no non-question-begging way of arguing this point. To the extent that you think it's more probable that God would have the property of metaphysical necessity than you think that a universe would have it, the existence of a universe will indeed strike you as evidence that God exists if you subscribe to the principle of sufficient reason in the right form. But the thought that there's more likely to be an ontologically independent God type thing than an ontologically independent, by being necessary or by being brute, universe type thing is simply the thought that there's more likely to be a God than not. And so this thought can hardly be used as a premise in a good argument for the existence of such a God. So that is, I suggest, a in itself sufficient reason to think that the cosmological argument cannot be a good argument for the existence of God for anybody. How plausible one finds its grounding intuition that there's something about any universe or sets of universes that needs an explanation and that there wouldn't be about God is how probable one thinks it is that there is a God from the outset. So the argument cannot raise the probability that there's a God to a higher level than what has initially assigned it. That's why I'm inclined to conclude that the cosmological argument cannot be taken even to inductively support the conclusion that there's a God. It's thus not a good argument and it cannot contribute to a good cumulative case argument for the existence of God. The cosmological argument doesn't provide us with any reason to believe that there's a God. But do read um, the back end of that cautionary note to see uh, other options. The feeling that the world as a whole is a question in need of an answer, and an answer which only God could provide, is a genuine feeling, which many, if not most people, have at some time had. I started my first lecture by speculating that everyone there would have had at least the feeling and uh, perhaps the suspicion that only God would be an answer. However, this feeling is not a reason for believing that the world as a whole really is contingent and needs an explanation of its existence in terms of the necessary God, unless that is one's feeling itself, Um, that there probably is a God is itself a reason for believing that there is a God but to establish that point would require a quite different sort of argument from the cosmological argument it would require an argument from religious experience so we must look then at the argument from religious experience and we shall do so but not now the task of looking at it and the task of looking at other arguments that begin from determinate experiences will have to wait we'll start on it next week thank you for your attention this week Thank you.